lift off and the clock has started. This is 20 minutes you'll never get back. Thank you very much, Nolan. Yes, this is 20 minutes you'll never get back. You're not going to. You can try. You're not going to. My name is Doug Prezak, and thank you very much for tuning in and listening. I always appreciate that. And uh, back to Nolan. He was the announcer this week because Nolan was also the very first announcer back on episode one just a little over a year ago. Can you believe it? And here it is, episode 50. You know, when I started this podcast, I figured I had maybe 10 shows worth of junk in my head, uh, but apparently there was more. So here we are at number 50. I was trying to think of what I should uh, ramble on about in this episode. I mean, you know, you folks have listened to 49 other topics. That's uh, 980 minutes of your lives you've lent me or 16 and a third hours. That's like waking up at seven o'clock in the morning and starting with episode one. And then you listen to all of that. And by the time uh, episode 49 is over with, it would be 1130 at night. Oh my God, I need to apologize to everybody. I'm really really sorry. But for all of you who have hung on and listened to all these things, I really do appreciate it. All right, now let's uh, do a real quick thing here. Did we pick up the coveted Vermont or maybe the Dakotas? Well... Yeah, we're still missing seven states. I don't know what to do. But I will say hello to Newberry, England. They just joined. (laughs) Hello, England. All right, back to today's topic. I asked myself, what do people celebrate the 50th of something with? Well, how do they celebrate that? Well, the answer was gold. Now, that's a really big topic, so I narrowed it down and no. I'm not going to talk about gold jewelry, much to the chagrin of my executive producer. I'm not going to talk about gold coins or gold fillings or the Golden Girls. Nope. I'm talking about the place where they keep the gold. That's right. The United States Bullion Depository at Fort Knox. Now, I always thought that all the gold was kept in a building called Fort Knox. Uh, No, Doug, you're wrong. It's in the Bullion Depository, which is located next to Fort Knox, which is an army base. So there, the record is set straight. But we're going to talk about the Bullion Depository. That's right, the big giant building, and it has all the gold in it. At least that's what they tell us. So here's a little bit of history on that, okay? The United States Bullion Depository is located at the intersection of Bullion Boulevard and Gold Vault Road. How lucky were they to find a place to build that has those street names? (laughs) Man, that was lucky. (laughs) I'm sorry. Back in the 1935 version of June, the United States Treasury announced plans to quickly build a gold depository at the Army base of Fort Knox, Kentucky. Now, at the time, the U.S. Gold Reserve was being kept at the New York City Assay Office and the Philadelphia Mint. The intent was to move the gold reserves you know, away from coastal cities to areas that were less vulnerable to foreign military invasion. Now, 2,666 metric tons of gold had already been moved from the San Francisco Mint to the Denver Mint. The military advantages of the location for Fort Knox were an army attacking from the eastern seaboard would have to uh, fight through the Appalachian Mountains, which was considered a reasonable impediment. It was also isolated from railways and highways, which would further hinder any kind of attacking power. The Treasury Department began construction of the United States Bullion Depository in 1936 on land transferred to it from the military, hence right next door. The gold vault was completed in December of that year for $560,000 
or the equivalent of $8.3 million in 2019. So let's add a few bucks more for 2021. And now for those early gold shipments, the first wave of gold was made semi-weekly in 1937 between January and June. The shipments were overseen by the United States Post Office Department. <laughs> what could go wrong there? I'm sorry for everybody listening with the Post Office Department. I apologize. That was a joke at your expense. I didn't mean it. The gold was transported from the New York Assay Office and the Philadelphia Mint onto trains using postal trucks and municipal police escorts. It took over five months and required 39 trains consisting of 215 cars to move all that gold. In the armored train cars, postal workers were accompanied by soldiers, secret service agents, and mint guards. Once those gold trains arrived in Kentucky, the gold was transferred from the trains onto army trucks under the protection of soldiers armed with all kinds of armor-piercing bullets and machine guns. You know, keep it safe. But here's a good one for you. The post office, <laughs> they billed the Treasury Department for transporting the weight of the crates and the gold using fourth-class postage rate with added insurance. <laughs> they billed them. <laughs> fourth-class, no less. A total of 4,909 tons of gold was moved to Fort Knox in the first wave. This shipment represented 44% of the U.S. gold reserves. Now, as of July 31st, 2020, Fort Knox holds a little over 147 million troy ounces, or 4,583 tons of gold reserves, you know, depending on how you like to weigh your gold, with a market value of $291 billion. This represents 56% uh, percent of the gold reserves in the United States. I have no idea where the other 44% is, but whatever. Now, how do they store that gold? Well, if you see any movie that has bad guys stealing gold, you know it's in gold bars. The bars in the depository are approximately seven inches long, three and a half inches wide, and one and three quarter inches thick. Now, while each of these bars contains the equivalent of about 400 ounces of gold, they kind of differ in their composition. Mint gold bars are a minimum of 99.5% fine gold. Coin bars are made from melted gold coins, and they're the same composition uh, as the coins they came from. Also, now in addition to the gold, the depository currently holds 10 1933 double eagle gold coins, just 10, a 1974D aluminum penny, <laughs> just one, one penny in there, and 12 gold Sacagawea coins that flew on the space shuttle. But it's not just gold and coins that are kept in there. Librarian of Congress Archibald McLeish expressed concern with the safety of the library's precious artifacts as soon as he took office in 1939. As the Battle of Britain was fought during the summer and fall of 1940, McLeish asked the U.S. Geological Survey about locating an underground storage for, quote, valuable paintings and books and within reasonable distance of Washington. In December of 1940, he directed his staff to create a detailed catalog of the Library of Congress's most irreplaceable assets and the space required to store them. Primary attention was given to those items considered, quote, most important for the history of democracy, end quote. Now, when it became clear that Congress just was not going to fund the building of a separate facility, Ooh. 
McLeish sought other options. On April 30, 1941, he asked the Treasury Secretary for thousands of cubic feet at Fort Knox for the most notable items in the library. The Secretary replied by offering the librarian 10 cubic feet. Come on, I, you know, I can't fit the stuff in my snack cabinet in 10 cubic feet. Ugh. In July, when the inventory was complete and it had been determined that some 40,000 cubic feet would be needed to store all the unique and irreplaceable materials from the library, the Treasury Department raised their original 10 cubic feet offer to 60 cubic feet. What a bunch of jerks. Since he didn't get the space he wanted, McLeish prioritized items to be sent to Fort Knox. Among the items were the signed original Constitution of the United States, the signed original Declaration of Independence, Lincoln's second inaugural address, autographed by Lincoln, and Lincoln's Gettysburg address, the first and second autographed drafts, and a bunch of other stuff. Items were packed into four crates and then shipped by train to the depository on December 26, 1941. Now, while the vault was invulnerable to a bombing attack, it was not climate controlled. So the documents were vulnerable to changes in temperature and humidity, as well as bugs. So special precautions were taken. The items were locked in bronze containers that had been heated for six hours to drive off any moisture. The containers were then embedded in mineral wool and placed in wooden cases hermetically sealed with lead. An air conditioning unit and calcium chloride dryers were installed in the vault. On October 1, 1944, all the items were returned to the Library of Congress, and there's no mention if the post office charged them for that move. All right, so now that you know what's in there, maybe you're thinking, hey, I'll take a crack at it. You know, sneak in, grab a couple bars, get out, no big deal. Well, let me tell you about the building, okay? The building measures 105 feet by 121 feet and is 42 feet above ground level. Materials that were used to construct the building include 16,500 cubic feet of granite, 4,200 cubic yards of concrete, 750 tons of reinforced steel, and 670 tons of structural steel. The outer wall is made of granite lined concrete. At each of the four corners of the uh, structure is a guard box. The words United States Depository are inscribed over the marble front entrance, and above the inscription is the seal of the Department of Treasury in gold. Duh. Below the fortress-like structure lies the gold vault. The vault is made of steel plates, steel I-beams, and steel cylinders laced with hoop bands and encased in concrete. It's less than 4,000 square feet in area and two stories high. The main vault door weighs 20 tons, and the vault casing around the door is 25 inches thick. The vault door is set on a 100-hour time clock and is rarely opened. To open the vault, members of the depository staff must dial separate combinations known only to them. The facility itself is surrounded by fences and guarded by the United States Mint Police. Between the outer perimeter and the depository walls are rings of razor wire and minefields. <laughs> they take this stuff seriously. The grounds are monitored by high-resolution night vision video cameras and microphones. The depository is equipped with its own emergency power and water systems. Now, let's just say, after hearing all of that, you still want to take a crack at it, and somehow, you managed to get in. Well, what happened next? Well, you might want to take note of this. 
the rooms are designed to be deliberately flooded. So assuming you are heavily armed and you're too dangerous to try and take out alive, all they need to do is open a valve and flood the rooms. The room fills up with water, floor to ceiling, and the gold would be unharmed. And after, you know, a while, they would drain the room and, well, you're dead. <laughs> so don't, don't try it. No one's ever tried, and you shouldn't either. So right now, I think it's time for I take a real quick break. When we come back, you're probably listening to this sometime around 4th of July, which means in the darkness hours, there's going to be some uh, sparklers and explosions going off in the sky. So we'll talk about fireworks. Don't go away. We'll be right back. Dream girl, dream girl, beautiful luster cream girl. Tonight, show him how much lovelier your hair can look after a luster cream shampoo. Tonight, try luster cream shampoo and be a... Dream girl, dream girl, beautiful luster cream girl. You owe your crowning glory to... A Luster Cream Shampoo. I don't even know what to say about that. <laughs> Except I'm glad I don't live in the 1940s. Oh, man. All right, let's, uh, let's get on with the show. Well, it's 4th of July uh, this weekend in this country, and you undoubtedly have fireworks going off around you. But how do those come to be? Well, you know what? I did some research, so you didn't have to. Kind of like I did the research in Fort Knox, but I forgot to say that. <laughs> 50th episode and I blow the intro. Way to go, Doug. Anyway, according to the American Pyrotechnic Safety and Education Foundation, most historians believe that fireworks were invented in China. There are some who argue that the original birthplace was in the Middle East or India. I'm going to go with the majority. You can decide on your own. Around the year 200 B.C., people in Liwan, China, created the precursor to the firecracker, they would throw bamboo stems into a fire to produce an explosion with a loud sound. Uh, the belief here was that the resulting noise would ward off evil spirits. So let's take a quick fast forward to the year 600 AD. By then, the Chinese alchemists had taken the practice a step further by devising a gunpowder concoction from substances like charcoal and sulfur and potassium. And they stuffed this mixture inside of bamboo shoots and then lit it with a torch. It was during the Song Dynasty that people manufactured the first firecrackers, comprising tubes made from rolled sheets of paper containing this gunpowder mixture and a fuse. Now, by the 10th century, the Chinese had figured out that they could actually make bombs with the gunpowder, so they attached firecrackers to arrows and they shot those at their enemies. Now, way to ruin it for everybody. In 1240, the Arabs had acquired the knowledge of gunpowder and its uses from China. A Syrian named Hassan al-Rama wrote of rockets, fireworks, and other incendiaries. And he used terms that suggested he got his knowledge from the Chinese sources, such as his references to fireworks as Chinese flowers. In 1925, Marco Polo... <laughs> Sorry. He brought fireworks to Europe from Asia. Around the 13th century, gunpowder... I'm still laughing at the Marco Polo... Around the 13th century, gunpowder and the recipes to create it made their way to Europe and Arabia via other uh, diplomats, explorers, and Franciscan missionaries. In England, rulers used fireworks displays to entertain their followers. The first royal fireworks display is thought to have taken place on Henry VII's wedding day in 1486. 
1685, now I'm giving you guys a lot of dates. I hope you're writing these down because there will be a test later, okay? In 1685, James II's coronation presentation was so amazing that it earned the firemaster a knighthood. Not to be outdone, Tsar Peter the Great of Russia put on a five-hour fireworks show to mark the birth of his son. You know, after the third or fourth bang, it's kind of all the same thing, isn't it? Five hours? <sighs> you go, Peter. During the Renaissance, pyrotechnic schools were popping up across Europe. The schools taught eager students how to create elaborate explosions. Well, as the Europeans traveled to the New World, so did their fireworks recipes. Some say, I don't know who, but some say that Captain John Smith set off the first American display in Jamestown, Virginia in 1608. Now, on July 4th, 1777, the first anniversary of the day the Continental Congress adopted the Declaration of Independence, fireworks became a 4th of July tradition. The year before, John Adams wrote in a letter, quote, the day will be most memorable in the history of America. I am apt to believe that it will be celebrated by succeeding generations as the great anniversary festival. It ought to be solemnized with pomp and parade, bonfires and illuminations from one end of this continent to the other from this time forward forevermore. So, yeah, okay, I guess he was right. The big colorful displays that crowds ooh and ah over today were derived in the 1830s when the Italians combined metals with explosives to develop colored fireworks. People in that country incorporated trace amounts of different metals and other ingredients to enhance the brightness and make creative shapes and a variety of colors. Around this time, family businesses such as Fireworks by Grucci and the Zambelli Fireworks made modest names for themselves in Berry and Caserta, Italy. And starting in the late 1800s, the aerial fireworks migrated to the United States. A member of the Grucci family said his second great-grandfather and my second great-uncle came through Ellis Island with a shoebox full of formulas and a dream, not even a dollar in his pocket. And George Zambelli Sr. faithfully stowed his pyrotechnic dream in a similar way. He bound Zambelli's firework formula inside a small black notebook, which stays locked up in the family safe to this day. So there you have it. Fireworks displays start off as bamboo shoots being tossed into a fire and exploding to the giant aerial displays we have going on nowadays, right outside my window as I speak. And that will bring this episode to a close. Oh, but first, what have we learned? We learned that the post office is going to take their cut of the action, no matter who you are. We learned that no matter how hard you try, you're not going to get into the uh, bullion depository at uh, Fort Knox. And if you do, at least I hope you can hold your breath for a long time. And I learned if you start researching how to break into Fort Knox, <laughs> some red flags go up in assorted government agencies. And we learned you can thank the Grucci and Zambelli families for scaring the bejesus out of your dogs and cats every 4th of July. <laughs> so <laughs> that's it. Happy 4th of July, everybody. And thank you very much for listening. I always appreciate it. And I will talk to you next time, episode 51 on 20 Minutes You'll Never Get Back. Bye-bye. Hi, it's me again, Doug. I want to take up a couple more seconds of your time just to remind you, if you want to stay informed of when uh, the next podcast is posted, all you need to do is sign up at uh, on that Instagram machine, 
It's at 20MYNGB, 20MYNGB, and that means 20 minutes you'll never get back. Uh, If you sign up there, you'll uh, always see when the next podcast is uploaded. And if you want to leave some comments, by all means, please do go to the uh, website at 20minutespodcast.com. So it's 20minutespodcast.com, and uh, you can... uh, Leave your comments there. It also tells you how you can be an announcer for the show. So take take a look at those two things if you'd like and stay informed. And all, as always, thank you very much for listening to uh, 20 Minutes You'll Never Get Back. Bye-bye.